Well, good morning, Go Church. I'm excited about today because this morning we start a brand new series on love through 1 Corinthians 13. I'll just go ahead and tell you now that if you did not grab a bulletin on your way in, you may want to sneak out and grab one right now because today is going to be a fill-in-the-blank kind of day, okay? You're going to be burning through lead, or maybe if, if you're using a pen, I don't know what it would be. But it's going to be a lot of writing, so... But a fun fact about me is that when it comes to Christian music artists, I think my favorite would have to be Stephen Curtis Chapman. I know that's kind of old school, but honestly, he's one of the few that has kind of stayed true and authentic and, and humble over years in the spotlight. And I think that's pretty rare these days. Usually, uh, you spend enough time in the spotlight, we have a lot of folks that are saying, that are denouncing their faith. Um, so uh, Christian, a great Christian music artist, Stephen Curtis Chapman, probably my favorite. Um, but anyway, uh, one of my favorite songs he ever wrote is called All About Love. And in that song, he sang these words, and I'm going to sing it for you. We've got CDs, tapes, and videos, radios, and TV shows, conferences, retreats, and seminars. We've got books and magazines to read on everything from A to Z and a web to surf from anywhere we are. But I hope with all this information buzzing through our brains that we will not let our hearts forget the most important thing is love, 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 love. It's all about love, 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 love. Everything else comes down to this. Nothing any higher on the list than love. Because after all, it's all about love. That's, that song stuck with me, and I, I cannot believe he wrote that in 2003, because if it was true then, then it's definitely true now, um, with all the stuff we got going on with information and Facebook and YouTube, and you can connect on anything, even that wasn't supposed to connect with other people before, now you can connect with people. I mean, there's just so many ways to get information. Um, but, you know, have you ever had so many things going on in your life that you just forgot about what mattered? You just got so busy and you forgot about love. I know I have. It's kind of like realizing you've been going in circles. Because without love, all the hustling and bustling that we do day in and day out, it isn't really going anywhere. In fact, I'd argue that without love, everything that we do is meaningless. And that's not just my opinion, that's what Scripture says. In fact, today, we'll be talking about the necessity of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there now, or you can follow along with me on screen. Here's what the Word of God says. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions... And if I give up my body in order to boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. There's a lot going on in that passage, actually. But if we boil it all down, then we arrive at this one simple truth. Everything in the Christian walk either rises or falls on love. At first, that may seem obvious, but when you really think about it, if this statement holds true, then it should have a profound impact on our lives. This morning, we'll be working through this passage verse by verse as we uncover just how necessary love really is. 
If you look in your bulletin, you'll see that there's kind of a unique structure for today. Um, it's filled out, all that space is filled up with information. So allow me to explain what's going on there. Um, today, every point has an equal and opposite point. And to help illustrate this, I'm using positive and negative numbers. The negative numbers are the bad news, which is what happens when we don't have love. The positive numbers are the good news, which is what happens when we do have love. So instead of having three points, what you've got is three positive points paired up with three negative points. They're converse truths. They're equal and opposite truths. That's the complex part. The easy part is that each pairing of points goes with each verse. So negative one and positive one go with verse one. Negative two and positive two go with verse two and so forth. But the most important thing to remember is that every single point supports the idea that everything in the Christian walk really does either rise or fall on love. I'm going to be saying that a lot today. That said, let's begin with negative one in your bulletin at the top. If we don't have love, then our worship is confusing. In verse one of our passage, Paul writes, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I realize that you're probably wondering what in the world tongues has to do with worship. And if you're new here, then you're really wondering what's going on. Where is this guy taking this? Where, what are we going to be talking about today? So I have, some, I have some explaining to do. We have some things to work through. So first of all, you should know that the entire passage in context is about spiritual gifts and that speaking in tongues is clearly listed as one of those in 1 Corinthians 12, 10. That said, the first thing I want to walk you through is why I'm calling the spiritual gift of tongues an act of worship. The bottom line is that 1 Corinthians 14, which is just a chapter after our passage today, is what gives me that idea, specifically in verse 2, which says this, For this person who speaks in tongues is not speaking to people but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. So basically what I see here is that the gift of, of speaking in tongues is mostly intended for the context of intimate prayer between a believer and God. And that would be a great definition for worship. However, personally, you aren't going to find me speaking in tongues anytime soon. Honestly, I'm not even completely sure on what it means or if people really still have that gift today. I tend to think that maybe it was just a gift that was intended to reveal God's power in the early church, but also I'm not a full-blown cessationist either because I don't believe that we have any real like concrete evidence in the Bible that the gift of tongues has ceased. I don't think that's, we have enough evidence in the Bible to say that. But regardless, it's certainly not an area that we should be dogmatic or divisive about. This isn't like not the issue to go to bat on with your Christian friends or make statements about on social media. If we're truly a people of the word, we must admit that there are some things that we know more about than others. And there are some things that are a little more important than others too. That said, last time I checked, there isn't a whole lot of speaking in tongues going on in this church, like somewhere around none. So uh, the part about specifically speaking in tongues may not be incredibly applicable for us here today, but if we understand tongues as an act of worship, then we can apply this one simple truth. If we don't have love, then our worship is confusing. It's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It distracts, disrupts, derails. When new people walk into a church that doesn't have love in their worship, it actually drives them away from Christ. It doesn't bring them closer to him. Worship without love shows people that while our words are about Jesus, our hearts are about us. And that's confusing. That's the bad news. But the good news is, under positive one, that if we do have love, 
then our worship is clarifying. When our worship is done in love, it draws people to God and sheds light on His presence, His nature, and His reality. When worship is done in love, believers and unbelievers alike can't help but be captivated by a knowledge of God that transcends reasoning. When worship is done in love, there is a knowledge that God is God and we aren't. And while that is true, it begs the question, how can we really apply this? How how can we make sure that our worship is done in love? Seems kind of abstract. What can we do? Well, first, it's important to understand that the word worship is actually a combination of two words, the words worth and the word ship. And it fundamentally means to give worth to something. So I'd argue that we need to look at our motivation because in worship, a person can either be motivated to bring worth to self or to bring worth to God. If we're bringing worth to ourselves, then we're lacking love because love isn't selfish. If we're bringing worth to God, our worship does have love because God is love. But going a little further down this path of thought, I've observed two ways to bring self, to bring worth to self in worship that we need to avoid and only one way to bring worth to God. So the first way to bring self to worship that we need to avoid is to show and tell. When I say show and tell, what I'm talking about is the need to bring something into worship that you want others to see. It's like an unhealthy need to be noticed. I'll be honest and say that when I think of show and tell, there's a story that comes vividly into my mind, and some folks are here today who were there So they're going to love this. But last year, I had the privilege of attending a pastor's retreat with my family during the summer. It was a very positive experience. Um, I'll never forget it, honestly. It it came at a really good, like a needed time in my life. Um, All the kids came with us. We were in one room. It was crazy, but it was fun. But uh, there was great worship, too. But I'll just say this. There's one thing that that I noticed um, that I'll probably always remember because it stuck out. And uh, I'll just say it this way. Never underestimate the impact of one woman in her tambourine. (laughs) Alec, don't you dare get any crazy ideas. Okay, so she was in the front row, and we'd be singing singing like a quiet song, okay? Like, uh, how deep the Father's love, how deep the Father's love for... I mean, just... We were just barely singing, and she'd be like, and then we'd think when she thought the song was over, she'd start shaking it a lot, like, and then it wasn't over. Okay, uh, it was honestly, it was out of, it was so out of place that it was a little bit hilarious, and you just have to have good humor during those times. Caroline and I were together, and we looked at each other, and we were like, trying to hold it in, you know, but not doing a very good job. (laughs) But anyway. in all seriousness, it was very distracting. So the next time you consider your motivation in worship, just remember the tambourine lady, because it's a perfect example of show and tell. And the reason for that is because show and tell worship is ultimately selfish at its core, and it's inconsiderate of others. It says, hey, look at me. Look at what I can do. Look at how passionate I am for God. Look at how well I can worship. And none of that has anything to do with love. But the second way to bring worth to self and worship is to hide and keep. Hide and keep worshipers are afraid of expressing themselves because they're too worried about what others think, and that's ultimately just another form of selfishness. In fact, I found that to be very um, effective in combating insecurity. 
and that's just bonus material. But seriously, if you do struggle with insecurity, try to realize that at its core, it's selfishness. It's worrying too much about yourself and how you look in the eyes of others. And it's the same thing when it comes to worship. If you're afraid of getting too emotionally involved or you feel like all eyes are on you, then odds are you struggle with hide and keep. So those are the two ways that we need to avoid in expressing the wrong motivation in worship, which is to bring worth to self. But how do we bring worth to God? It's really quite simple. We bring worth to God when we pray and seek. Pray and seek worshipers don't put on a show, but they also don't keep it all inside because that's not their focus. Their focus is to talk with God during worship and to seek His presence. When I think of pray and seek, I think of something like an, a small underground church in China. Because they come to God like a dear penny for water. Their need for Jesus is so great that they can't afford not to use that time to pray to Him, to seek Him with all their hearts. They're just they're, they're single-minded on that. And what that tells us is that if we desire to be pray and seek worshipers, then we need to regularly remember just how much we need our Lord in our lives more than anything else. Because worship shouldn't be about our need to be approved in the eyes of others, but about our desire to be in the life-changing presence of the living God. So to summarize what I just said, here's the one-sentence t-shirt version. If you want to have love in your worship, then don't show and tell or hide and keep, but choose instead to pray and seek. Again, if you want to have love in your worship, then don't Show and tell or hide and keep, but choose instead to pray and seek. Remember, if we don't have love, our worship is confusing. But if we do have love, then our worship is clarifying. And that's just one example of the fact that everything in the Christian walk either rises or falls on love. As for the second example, let's take a look at verse 2 in our passage. Paul writes, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So in your bulletin, you're going to see a T-chart for negative two and positive two. I put that in there because we're about to do a whole lot of hopping around back and forth, and I don't want anybody to get confused. So the first part of the left side of your T-chart is this up there at the top. If we don't have love, then our spiritual gifts are powerless. And the second part, on the right side of your T-chart, if we do have love, then our spiritual gifts are powerful. Now, why am I using the, uh, the term spiritual gifts, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, that's exactly what prophecy, knowledge, and faith are called. Let's go ahead and read it now. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Here it is. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Okay, spiritual gifts. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. So that's why it's important for us to understand that, especially in the context of this passage, we're talking about spiritual gifts in verse 2. That said, each of these gifts are different. And while every Christian may not possess each one of them, prophecy, knowledge, and faith are a part of everybody's walk with Christ. So what we're going to do is take a look at each one of these gifts, both with and without love. Here we go. First off, under negative 2A on the left side of your chart. 
Without love, our prophecy is powerless. Wait a minute. Our prophecy? Is this going to turn into one of those churches, some kind of cult leader that tells everybody what to eat every month and when their dog's going to die? No. No. But I must say that it pains me to see how so many people abuse and incorrectly teach about the gift of prophecy. The reality is that there's a whole lot we don't know. And because of that, people have started making things up to fill in the gaps. So before I do anything else, I want to take a brief moment to explain what the Bible actually has to say about prophecy. So first of all, the word prophecy in the Bible does not only refer to a mysterious revealing of the future before it happens, because prophecy can also be about truth-telling or a timely word from Scripture in a person's life. However, there's still an element of prediction to the gift of prophecy that we would not be wise to forget about. An example of this would be Acts 11:28 uh, in Luke, where he, he wrote about a guy named Agabus who, who stood up and predicted that there would be a worldwide famine, and there was. That said, while that is one example of prophecy being used to predict something in the New Testament church, um, it may be close to the only example. Second of all, much like the gift of speaking in tongues, I'm not entirely sure how much prophecy is still going on today because at the dawn of the early church, it was an unprecedented uh, time uh, in God's story where he did more signs, he did more wonders in that day for that reason. And third of all, there are very important rules when it comes to the gift of prophecy that Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians 14, one of which being that any prophecy ever made is subject to the authority of Scripture. That's in 1 Corinthians 14.32. So with that established, when I say without love, our prophecy is powerless, I'm mostly referring to the idea of truth-telling or giving someone a, a timely word of advice from Scripture. But honestly, if you think about it, even that is a very extreme statement. In verse 2 of our passage, Paul is saying that sharing the real truth with people is powerless without love. I mean, that's easy to accept if you don't think about it that much. I mean, if it's just, especially if somebody's not really preaching truth, if it's like kind of half and half, then it's really easy to say, yeah, it's meaningless if it's not done in love. But if somebody is really, what they're saying is right on, and they're not doing it in love, and that's meaningless, that's a little harder to believe. So let me share something with you that might help. On a street corner in Portland, there was a homeless man with a cardboard sign asking for money from the cars that passed him by. The first person to stop was Truthful Trudy. Truthful Trudy rolled down her window and told the homeless man the truth. And without so much as a pause, she said, I'm going to tell you how it is. You're an able-bodied man with a beer gut. You succumb to the enablement of society. You need to get off your rear end, get a job and work hard at whatever job you can find. And by the way, if you can't nix a drug ha habit, then good luck at keeping one. Odds are you're going to fail, but you have to try. At first, the homeless man just felt a lot of anger. But later, he admitted to himself that she was right about some of the things she said. But he stayed there on the street corner, because after all, what point was there in trying? Later in the day, the second person to stop was emotional Emily. Emotional Emily had just finished crying because her favorite song got played on K-Love. And so already moved with compassion, she rolled down her window, took a deep breath, and said, I'm so sorry you're here on the street corner. Here's $20 and a coupon for a chocolate frosty at Wendy's. Then Emotional Emily got out of her car, gave the man a hug, and slowly drove away. At first, the homeless man was happy, and he thought to himself, at least somebody cares. But after he used the money to buy more drugs, and he'd eaten the last bite of his frosty, he went back out on the street corner because his problems hadn't gone away. 
By the time it was evening, the third person to stop was Helpful Hank. When Helpful Hank rolled down his window, he saw himself in the man. And after taking a moment to think, he said, life's hard. I'm sorry you're in the position you're in, but if I give you what you're asking for, I don't think it's going to help you in the long run. So what do you say you come and work on my farm instead? I need a hand, and you could use the money. The homeless man stood there and thought for what seemed like a long time. He knew Helpful Hank was right, but he also knew he cared. And with a smile, he said, okay, I'll give it a try. And from that point forward, the homeless man never went back to the street corner because the, for the first time in his life, the person who told him the truth was also the person that cared. And that brings us to the reality on the right side of your T-chart, which is this. With love, our prophecy is powerful. When you love someone and you tell them that truth in a way that reflects that love, amazing things can happen. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says that the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. Over the course of my life, many people have shared the truth with me at just the right time. But I can only think of two moments in my life when I believe someone actually predicted something in a way that had to be God in my life. And I'll never forget either one of them. But for today, I'll just pick one. As many of you know, I used to work at Chick-fil-A for years. And I would, every now and then, I would have these bad days because I was called to ministry at 13, and I would just be thinking, what am I still doing here, you know? I, I'm not fulfilling my purpose, and, and those kind of thoughts. And I would have these days where I would just be sad about it. Um, and I was definitely having one of those days. And uh, I was working the front counter that day, and an older man, I remember, um, got, got off a, a van. I think it was probably to a nursing home. Um, and he, he walked in, and he, he ordered his food. And when his food was ready, I came out and took it to him. And he said, young man, do you have a moment to sit down and talk? And I was thinking to myself, well, I don't want to be on my feet any longer. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll sit down and talk, whatever, you know. Let's have a conversation. But I, I honestly, I, I can't believe what happened next, what he said next. Because when I sat down, he looked at me, and I didn't know the man, and he didn't know me, Okay. But he turned to me and he said something like this. I know you're tired, but don't give up because I don't believe you're going to stay here. God has big plans for you. God is going to use you in ministry someday if you stay true to him. My response was utter shock. I hadn't told him that I was a Christian even. I hadn't told him that I was called to be a pastor. I, he did not know any of that. But that's what he said on that day in my life. I, I remember going home and just telling everybody about it that I knew, like, it, it was just, it was very, something very special that I'll never forget. And those were the words that, that I would remember in hard days to come. Those are the words that reminded me that God was going to stay true to his call on my life. That said, you don't have to predict things to know how to speak the truth to, and love to somebody. But if you do, I guarantee it will mean something because with love, our prophecy is powerful. But prophecy isn't the only spiritual gift that is deeply affected by whether or not we do or don't have love. And so now I need to ask you to look back at the left side of your T-chart because without love, our knowledge is powerless. Have you ever met somebody who knew all the right answers but you just couldn't stand to be around them? <laughs> yeah, odds are they probably had knowledge without love. It's almost like a kind of tone deafness. It pains me to say this, but fellow husbands, and I just, I, I just did this yesterday. 
when our wives come to us with emotional burdens and we present all of our amazing biblical solutions. Without first seeking to comfort their feelings, we are practicing knowledge without love. People that have knowledge without love speak first and listen poorly. And there's no real weight to what they say because their motive is obvious. They're not sharing knowledge to help others. They're sharing knowledge to feel better about themselves. And that's why without love, our knowledge is powerless. However, with love, our knowledge is powerful. I still remember the name of my favorite teacher. There's only one. He taught me in fourth and fifth grade in a little tiny school, about 150 kids. His name was Mr. Godfrey. Mr. Godfrey knew a whole lot, but he was also excellent at explaining what he knew. In fact, um, he led my class to, to some of the highest uh, standardized test scores in the whole state. I still have the, the award, the, the paper for it, somewhere in my garage. But, but the real thing that, that set Mr. Godfrey apart was the way that he clearly loved his classroom and his students because he didn't leave a single kid behind. Like, he would explain everything like a million different ways. Like, when it came to math, he, would, he wouldn't just tell you how to do the project, like the problem, you know. He, he would, like, show you why it needed to work that way. He just, he got the inner workings of what was going on. He was, he was good at explaining and he cared. And whatever Mr. Godfrey taught, it was evident that he wanted to use what he had learned in his life to make his students better people. And he succeeded at his goal because love, because with love, Knowledge is powerful. But knowledge and prophecy aren't the only spiritual gifts that are deeply affected by the presence or absence of our love. Paul also lists the gift of faith, which leads us to the final point of verse 2. Without love, our faith is powerless. This one truth may be the hardest to believe in some ways because faith is so vital to our, our walk. But the reality is that faith without love is rooted in circumstance not God. Sometimes I have faith without love when I'm fishing. Every now and then I pray that God will help me catch a fish. I figure if he did it for Peter, you know, that one time, he could do it for me. There's a biblical example. There's precedence for this, you know. But uh, so I cast my line out into the water and sort of with a half-hearted prayer. Um, but, but I already know, I already know deep down that I'm starting the day off on the wrong foot because I'm focused on the wrong things because I'm I'm, asked, I'm, I'm centering everything on catching a fish and that thrill instead of being with God, being with him in nature. Um, and then usually when I do that, I have a bad day too. I don't catch anything. And then I get angry with God sometimes, especially if the person I'm with is catching more fish than me. And that just goes to show you that faith without love is powerless. It doesn't do anything. But on the contrary, with love, with love, Faith is powerful because it is rooted in the unchanging character of God. If we have faith with love, then God is not our genie. He is our father. Or here's another way to think of it. Faith without love believes that God can move a mountain, but faith with love believes that God is enough even when he doesn't. This whole subject reminds me of my own kids and how they, th they think of me as their dad. <laughs> Lily, my two-year-old daughter, thinks that she can get anything she wants with just a snap of a finger, that I can do the impossible. An example of this would be the other day we were driving in the car, and she asked me if I could turn off the sun, okay? <laughs> thinks I can do anything, and I think even if I had, she wouldn't even been surprised. She would have been like, okay, like, Dad took care of it, just like he usually does. He turned off the sun. All right, good. On the other hand, my five-year-old son, Leland, is starting to understand more and more. He's, he's slowly starting to trust that, that I know best. 
even when my answer is no. Because the reality is he's starting to believe in the person that I am more than the things that I can give him. And that right there is the difference between faith without love and faith with it. It's the difference between believing that God will give you what you ask for and believing that God knows what's best even when he doesn't give you what you ask for. But as truthful as that may be, it's one thing to know what spiritual gifts look like with or without love and quite another to know how to apply that knowledge in your day-to-day life. So how can we make sure that we're using our spiritual gifts in love? Well, to put it succinctly as possible, just remember this. Don't puff up build up. The words puffed up are actually used a number of instances in both the Old and New Testament, and it means just what you think it means. Being puffed up is the shallow, hot air of arrogance and pride. When we're puffed up, there's no possible way that we can use our spiritual gifts in love, because when prophecy, knowledge, and faith are wrapped up in making you feel better than the next guy, love is absent. Sadly, I've seen this kind of puffing up when it comes to spiritual gifts, not only in people, but in churches. Seriously, there are whole churches that are devoted to the single purpose of helping people get better and better at their spiritual gifts until they can basically level up. Then there's all the books you can read about it. Book after book after book telling you to invest in your gift, focus on your gift, look for the places that you can use your gift. And frankly, what it all boils down to is mostly just a big fat wad of selfishness. And folks, love and selfishness don't mix. So if you want to use your spiritual gifts in love, then don't puff up What you need to do instead is build up. Build up what? Build up the church. That's exactly what we're called to do with our spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14, 12 and 26. So let's go ahead and read those right now, starting with 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. All right. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Then in verse 26, he writes, What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Everything is to be done for the building up. So there you have it. Spiritual gifts are not given to us so that we can puff up our own identity and sense of self-worth. They're given to us to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we remember that, then we will have love when we use our spiritual gifts And the reason that's important is because of this reality. If we don't have love, then our spiritual gifts are powerless. But if we do have love, then our spiritual gifts are powerful. Why? Because everything in the Christian walk either rises or falls on love. But there's a third and final reason from our text today that that's true, which is this. Under negative three, if we don't have love, then our sacrifice is vain. Now, typically the word vain has two meanings. It can either refer to emptiness or it can also mean conceited or selfish. But when it comes to sacrifice without love, it's both meanings of the word. Allow me to explain what I mean. First of all, without love, our sacrifice is empty because it has no true reward. Maybe it seems obvious, but giving over your body and giving away all your possessions without love is a waste of time. I mean, really, all it brings you is resentment, remorse, and bitterness. Actually, sacrifice without love reminds me of something called aestheticism, which was the growing belief in basically 300 to 500 A.D. that the only way to emulate Christ was to live a life of complete and total sacrifice. And that doesn't sound so bad until you hear about the kinds of things that they tried to do to live that out. 
For example, common practices of aestheticism included willful sleep deprivation, social withdrawal, celibacy and the condemning of marriage as evil, and the like self-inflicted mortification. And while that does seem absolutely ridiculous to us, that's the logical end of sacrifice without love. It's empty and it's lacking substance. But sacrifice without love is also vain in that it is conceited because it's about making ourselves look good to others. And with that, I'm just going to have to come right out and say it. If you're not eating gluten or dairy and you don't have a serious reason not to, I don't want to hear about it anymore (laughs) at all. Don't want to hear about it. (laughs) And if you're going to make food for the rest of us, then leave the good stuff in there. Forget the virtue signaling and remember the butter. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Remember the butter because everything tastes better with butter. Some of y'all needed to hear that today. But in all seriousness, if we don't have love, then our sacrifice really is vain because it is both empty and it's conceited. It's about us. That's the bad news. We get ready to fill in the blank under positive three because the good news is this. If we do have love, then our sacrifice is valuable. When I think of loving sacrifice, I think of Mary of Bethany pouring out the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet to prepare him for burial. If you remember the story, Judas complained that it could be sold for a year's wages, but instead of agreeing with Judas, Jesus actually rebuked him. Jesus clearly valued Mary's act of of loving sacrifice as being worth it, as being worth a lot more than a year's wages. But as for the ultimate example of love, without sacrifice, we need look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. He died so that we could live. In terms of value, I don't think there's anything greater than that. So even the cross reveals that if we do have love, then our sacrifice is valuable. That said, while that truth is important, we need to talk about how to apply it. How do we sacrifice with love? Well, let me give you two practical ideas to help. Here they are. Number one, don't give what's left. Give what's best. Whatever it may be, giving yourself, giving possessions, or your preferences, sacrifice is really all about giving. So when you sacrifice, give yourself a heart check and ask the question, am I giving what's left or am I giving what's best? If you're giving out of what you have left over, odds are your sacrifice is more about compulsion than it is about love. But if you make a sacrifice in love, then you're going to give your very best because then your sacrifice has to cost you something. But here's another way to make sure you're sacrificing in love. Don't give to impress Give to bless. During his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus highlighted the importance of this principle, the example of fasting in Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And this is what he said. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to their Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
So here's the connection. Fasting is an act of sacrifice. It's a refusal to meet your own physical needs so that you can pursue a closer relationship with God, which is both a blessing to God and to you. When the Pharisees fasted, they made sure to get noticed and make people impressed by their piety. But Jesus said, when we fast, we shouldn't make it obvious to anyone but the Father. So the point is, if you want to have sacrifice in love, don't give to impress like the Pharisees. Give to bless. And remember, if we don't have love, then our sacrifice is vain. If we do have love, then our sacrifice is valuable. So in conclusion, let's remember together that once again, everything in the Christian walk either rises or falls on love because if we don't have love, then our worship is confusing, our spiritual gifts are powerless, and our sacrifice is vain. But if we do have love, then our worship is clarifying. Our spiritual gifts are powerful, and our sacrifice is valuable. But as we close today, I want to end with one last thought, which is this. In order to have love, you must first receive it from God. You can't give what you haven't gotten. The truth is God's love is the only true love out there because everything else that we try to muster up as humans, it just ends in selfishness one way or another. It's about us trying to to get ahead, trying to get something for us. So if you've never received God's love, I I want you to know that it's available and it's real. But it also must be received. What I mean is when someone does something to show you love, it won't matter to you until you accept it. And as it turns out, God has done something incredible to show you love. He was tortured and killed so that you might believe in him and have everlasting life. And his name is Jesus. He died on the cross so that you might not have to face the penalty for your sin, which the Bible says is death. But again, the question is, will you receive it? Will you receive it? Will you receive the greatest act of love ever given? Or will you count it as a hoax, a myth, a legend? Whatever you decide, realize now that you you don't have much time left. You don't know how much time you have. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be in 50 years from now, but at some point, I'm pretty sure last time I checked, we all die. Every single one of us. And we all face judgment. And the question is this, are you ready for that day? What will you have to stand on when that day comes? So I'll ask one more time, is there anyone in this room who is ready to receive the greatest gift of love ever given? And if so, I want to give you a chance to do that with me right now in prayer. Lord, there is anyone in this room right now who hasn't made a decision to trust in you, who who barely knows what I'm talking about, but knows they need to take a step of faith. Lord, I pray for that person right now. And if, if you are that person, just pray something like this in your heart. You can repeat it after me in your heart, but you have to mean it. You can't just, you can't just repeat it. You have to mean it. But there's nothing special about the prayer that I'm about to pray at all. It's just a communication with you and God saying, hey, I received the gift of love. That's what it is. It's your response. So if you've never done that, pray something like this in your heart. Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the grave. I believe that you're God. I don't understand all of it. But I understand enough to know that I need you. 
So I'm sacrificing everything that I hold dear. I'm, I'm giving away myself to you, God. I repent of my way, of myself. I turn to you. I ask that you would come into me and change me from the inside out, that you would save me. Jesus, come into my life. And if you prayed that prayer, we're going to have a moment where you can come to the back. But for the rest of us, Lord, I just ask that, that you would help us apply what your word has to say this morning. That you would help us have love in what we do in our spiritual gifts, Lord, in our faith, in everything. You would help us have love. Help us apply that this week. And all these things, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.